professors once asked me and the rest of my class, when is it that you feel the most connected to the world? And I still remember my answer. So I grew up on top of a hill that overlooked the Blue Ridge Mountains in the Shenandoah Valley. Uh, My house was right at the top. And one of my favorite things to do growing up was to run from the top of the hill all the way down to the bottom where the stream was. I was always barefoot, my hair let loose, and my arms would flail around like crazy. And I would do this most often in the pouring down rain, and sometimes at night too, which added a little bit of extra risk. But it just made me feel so alive. I felt totally free, just letting myself go and be carried by gravity to the bottom of the hill, and usually lose pretty much all control. This was my home, the place where I grew up, It was a part of me. It was where I felt rooted and connected. And I remember running down that hill made me feel kind of insignificant, actually. Like, the joy in the life that I was feeling in that moment didn't have to mean anything to anyone else. I was just there, racing down a hill, the middle of a rainstorm, right where I belonged. Welcome to Shifting Climates, where we attempt to rehumanize the conversation on climate change. I'm Harrison Horst. And I'm Michaela Mast. This episode, we're trying to figure out how to reattach ourselves to place, to replace ourselves, if you will. We've all heard it before. The age of modern technology has allowed us to become far more connected to the world than we used to be. I can talk to my friends in Romania, buy food grown in Peru, and virtually walk down the streets of India, all in a day's time. But we met some people on our travels who aren't so sure that's all it takes to be connected to the earth. This episode's focus is two-part. First, we'll hear a little bit about the connection that we're missing. And second, we talk to some people for whom connecting with the earth naturally leads to building community, often around food. Well, actually, could we start with your name and uh, what you do and where we are right now? Okay, I'm Ray Person. We were Uh, sitting down at the home of another farmer in the Bluffton uh, area, Ray Person. Elizabeth and I are owners of this farm, Bucksnort Farm. But this farm is a little bit different than the others we visited. And uh, it's a cooperative, 18 families together run the farm, a 20-acre organic farm. We sat on couches in Ray and Elizabeth's farmhouse in the company of their dog, Skillet, and surrounded by piles of books. I'm also a college professor at Ohio Northern University where I teach all the classes in Bible. So that's my full-time job. That makes his work on his farm a very part-time job and not his primary source of income. So Ray was quick to point out that it would be unfair to compare him to other farmers in the area. When, I, when we started with the farm, I was certain that at some point it would impact my scholarship. I wasn't certain how. I wrote the commentary on Deuteronomy for the Earth Bible Commentary Series. Cool. It's called Deuteronomy and Environmental Amnesia. <laughs> and it looks at how the male elites who wrote the book of Deuteronomy were detached enough from the land 
that they suffered from environmental amnesia and that some of the laws don't make a whole lot of sense. Well, we don't know much about Deuteronomy, but we were intrigued, so we asked Ray to explain this a little bit more. All right, ancient Israel has like six different ecological niches, okay? So if, if, if we look at just the geography of the land, there's a lot of variety in a very small area. The book of Deuteronomy treats it as a monolithic whole. It's the good land. And so all of the laws are written as if the law can apply to in all of these ecological niches because the, the urban elite who wrote it didn't understand that variety and didn't understand how you can't survive in one ecological niche if you're acting as if you live in another. I think that describes us moderns quite well. Ray defines environmental amnesia as our failure to remember both our connection to the places where we live and to the inhabitants of those places. In a way, he says, we've lost touch with the rhythms of our environment, just like the writers of Deuteronomy. But for Ray, living on a small farm has helped him revive that awareness. I have learned a lot about how little I knew <laughs> before I moved to the farm. So the first year we were here, we had chickens. And you live in the country, you assume you put up with more insects, and, and that was kind of okay with us. The second year I got goats, I assumed more livestock, more manure, more flies. It didn't work out that way because the barn swallows moved in at the same time, and the barn swallows were eating the adult flies, and the chickens were scratching in the manure, eating the larvae, and so we ended up with fewer flies than we had before. That was a big surprise to me. It took me a while to figure out what was really going on, but it was a lesson that the land taught me because I was living in the midst of it in ways that I had not been before. He's a recovering environmental amnesiac, learning what it means to be a human in an ecological system. I think most of us in the modern world suffer from that. And of course, if you live on a farm and you have livestock, they have to be fed and watered every day, no matter what the weather is. And there's, I mean, there's, there's a rhythm to the farm that you just have to learn to live with Whatever the weather is, that's, that's part of it. So working on your environmental amnesia doesn't mean you have to stop living in an air-conditioned house, right? Those aren't mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. There are ways of incorporating this remembering into a lifestyle that also is fairly modern. Yes, yes. So even things like city parks can be a, a, a way of helping us understand something about our environmental amnesia getting outside of the city and going for a hike in a state park or something. I mean, there's, there's ways that we can do this better. Gardening is a great way for kids to learn a lot more about plants and insects and, and soils and all of that. So. What Ray is saying here is that we don't do a very good job of learning about the land that we occupy, its rhythms, 
its nuances and foibles, its likes and dislikes. And as Ray found out, it also has quite a bit to teach us if we let it. Ray told us about the story of Jonah, how all of God's creation works together to bring shalom in the story. The whale, the storm, the shade tree, even the worm. And the only thing stopping the culmination of shalom is Jonah's arrogance. Jonah is the cog in the wheel that gets stuck on his own self-importance. Similarly, Ray says, what are the lessons we would learn if we just got out of the way a little bit and let the workings of God's creation begin to restore balance? When it comes to climate change, I can't help but feel that our perceived self-importance is stopping us from doing the very work we were sent to do, bring God's shalom to earth. Perhaps we just need to do a bit more listening. We'll come back to Ray soon, but first, we'd like to introduce you to some other friends of ours. People who, though they wouldn't say it in the same way, have taken up the task of combating environmental amnesia among our children. Why don't I'll let you do it. Okay. <laughs> I'll lead this part. I, I used to be the guest uh, services so who did rentals, so I did a lot of tours. <laughs> the morning of a rainy Saturday in October finds us walking the grounds at Camp Friedenswald in southern Michigan attempting to mitigate some of our own environmental amnesia. I think both Amy with um, outdoor education programs and both of us together with our summer programs, we try to do as much as we can outside. (laughs) Many of our friends from Eastern Mennonite University adore Camp Friedenswald, and they can rave about it for hours. But none of us had ever been there before, so we were eager to finally experience it for ourselves. A big gym gathering area, and it can be used for worship, it can be used for activities. But honestly, during the summer, it doesn't get used that much. Yeah, we do stuff all. outside. Yeah. If we're going to do an activity, we're going to do it outside. If we're going to do a worship, we're going to do it outside. The grounds were beautiful, especially with the turning leaves of fall. We squelched our way through the drizzle and mud to one of Friedenswald's most distinct features the lake on the southeast edge of the camp. But this, and so we actually have two beaches, and it's, I mean, I think that it's the best part of, like, with, I think it's the best part of Friedenswald, I don't need to, like, mitigate that. It's a really amazing amenity. I I mean, being able to swim and do so many activities, do kayaking and canoeing. After the tour, we sat down with three of the staff members at Friedenswald. The program's director... I'm Naomi Graber-Leary, and I, along with my husband Kevin, are the program directors here at Camp Friedenswald. The executive director. And I'm Jenna Lichty-Martin, I'm the executive director. And the sustainability and outdoor education director. I'm Amy Hoosier, and my title is sustainability and outdoor education director. There were six of us sitting together in an enclosed gazebo with hot tea in hand, sheltered from the light rain outside. Jenna, Naomi, and Amy all grew up going to camp, and it didn't take long to tell that they've never stopped loving it. I grew up coming to Freedom's Wall, actually, as a young kid, and continued to come through my high school years and then worked on summer staff here. And when I would ever think of a place, think of an image of a peaceful place, uh, I would think of a specific trail at Camp Friedenswald, and I think that's still where my mind almost goes to. Also a place where I probably felt most connected to the elements, I mean, specific memories of being caught on outposts in storms and uh, stormy weather in a cabin, jumping in the lake for polar bear swims in the morning, and I think camp was definitely a place where 
my senses woke up. Maybe not surprisingly, one of Friedenswald's core values is appreciating nature. They value the natural world as an expression of God's spirit, to be explored, cared for, and delighted in, a sentiment that was tangible in the stories that they shared with us. I really like the way you talked about uh, camp as being a place where your senses were awakened. Are there yeah, any specific stories where you've seen that happen in one of your campers? One of my favorite stories from my first fall here, which was just last fall, we saw a spicebush swallowtail caterpillar on a sassafras branch and one of the students found it. We were on a nature hike and that caterpillar, it has like this totally fake snake head as like a self-defense, you know, mechanism to scare away predators. So we were all just like crowded around this like, you know, group of a uh, dozen or 15 of us just like totally into this caterpillar and everyone was so amazed. And then one kid took like a little pine cone and just like tapped it and out came this fake yellow tongue, like boom, right out of it. And the whole group of the went, ah! and we all jumped back and then we were like, oh, well, do it again, do it again. You know, like we did it again and there it did it again. It came out at us. It was one of my favorite moments of being on a nature hike at camp. It was pretty awesome. I'd like to see that. Yeah, well, and then I was like, oh, I should have saved it and brought it to the, my little caterpillar home. But I didn't, and then went back later, and I looked like half an hour for that caterpillar. <laughs> I didn't. But maybe that's telling, too, of the experience of those moments of being awakened. You can't capture them. Yeah. And right. like, there's something just, something of a sacred in those moments where you, something is tapped that you hadn't experienced before, and you see something new that you, you never had. The staff clearly love to be outside, and they told us that a lot of their programming, including worship sessions, are typically held out of doors. One thing that worshiping outside allows us to do is, you know, when you tell the story of Zacchaeus and the sycamore tree, you can say, you know, where are the sycamore trees at camp? When you, you know, when you talk about Jesus on the water, you can say, you know, here's the lake, and, you know, this is, you know, what is it like when it's storming at camp? And, you know, nature is just so much a part of the biblical story and, and how Jesus talked about his faith and how the Old Testament talks about faith and um, worshiping outside and telling those stories outside brings new life and new experience to those. Jenna, Naomi, and Amy have a similar philosophy as Ray. They also think that something is lost when we forget our place as members of creation. Our time at Friedenswald helped us remember as well. The cool rain, shaded woods, and misty lake. Being there in the fall was especially beautiful, though it also meant that we had no campers to talk to. Fortunately, we were able to find one back in Bluffton. Um, so, my name is Anna Bissegromast, and I I am a first-year student at the University of Dayton right now. We were lucky enough to be in Bluffton at the same time Anna was home for fall break, so we got to meet her at her home church, First Mennonite. She's been going to Camp Friedenswald for most of her life, since she was seven years old. What is something that camp has taught you that you haven't learned anywhere else? I would say camp has really like taught me about the importance of being physically immersed in nature as opposed to just like appreciating it theoretically like camp forced me to be immersed for a whole week and they highly like discouraged um, being connected to like their technology especially because like there's no cell service there so it's hard to even do it anyway 
I just got to experience that for a whole week. And I probably wouldn't have had the self-control to do that otherwise. We were still curious about what made camp so magnetic for so many people. So we asked Anna. The connection between being immersed in nature 100% and also all, like having frequent discussions about God and faith, camp is really good at putting them together and making that connection for people. I also think Anna said that it helps that this is also true of the staff members and the counselors. And we can understand the energy and enthusiasm of Jenna, Amy, and Naomi was contagious. So they're like super energetic and pumped about camp. And then campers are, and it's just like this community of like happy people in nature appreciating God. It's like super awesome. So, Is there a specific time you can remember when you felt like you were connected to God? Yeah, so um, usually I do when at campfire, it's like really dark and you can see the stars and like the fire is just like popping and <laughs> we're singing like Mennonite hymns and everything's just like very calm and everybody can like reflect and be contemplative. I think just that slowness and like calmness really helps me just to be able to focus and connect to God. So Anna has strong ties to Camp Friedenswald, but she also has strong ties in Bluffton. This was a fortunate happenstance for us because as we talked to Anna about the places where she feels most grounded, she actually mentioned the cooperative farm managed by Ray Person, who we spoke to at the beginning of the episode. As it turns out, Anna's family is actually one of the 18 in Ray's farming collective. And that brings us to part two of this episode. Because not only is the farm a place for Anna to practice connecting with the land, like she does at camp, it is also a place where community and food are grown side by side. What are you doing here, Just weeding. Just weeding. We were at harvest night, a time where members of the collective work together on the farm to complete the week's tasks. How long have we been working? Have we been coming? Part of the farm? Yeah. Like maybe eight years? Okay. That's Anna's mom, Carrie. So anything that doesn't look like this? They have like practice rooms. Mom, yeah. so anything that doesn't look like this? Cool? Yeah, do you see? And her seven-year-old brother, Jerian. That's good. In here. Yeah, I know. And do you see this is not, this is not a carrot either. I was going to leave that. No, 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 no. This. This. Oh, this. Yeah, yeah. That was close. <laughs> Jerian took a break from weeding to show me around his favorite part of the farm, the barns. Oh, chickens too, huh? Mm-hmm. Like I said, a lot of food. Luckily, I've been stepping in poop a lot with these shoes. <laughs> they're, they're rich These poop. are your poop shoes? <laughs> yeah, farm shoes. Farm shoes. Want to go in the chicken poop coop? If you want to. I know a shortcut. Show me the shortcut. I didn't have my farm shoes on, so I carefully followed Ryan through the door into the dimly lit chicken coop. He seemed right at home. What you doing there? Nice, just perching on your arm there. I can put it on my shoulder. What? No way. Show me. They don't like it though. Oh. Once um, it jumped in the air and I flipped my back over so it had to land it. Whoa! Did he get Dryan and I headed back to the garden to find the others still working on the harvest. They were gracious enough to stop their work for a few minutes to chat with me. How about you? When did you get involved? 
Uh, we moved to Ohio from a more urban area and I thought, when in Rome, so I was pretty excited about getting involved with local agriculture. Um, so I met with Ray. He was initially concerned that um, I would be uncomfortable with the presence of pigs. Uh -huh. However, I explained to him that my husband, well, he's from Syria, is secular, and that I'm Jewish. <laughs> this is Maya. She and her husband decided to stick around after talking with Ray, and she's been a part of the cooperative long enough to have a favorite time of year in the garden. Strawberries for you, too. No, my favorite would be uh, potatoes and sweet potatoes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's a big collective effort, it's kind of like a treasure hunt. We never know exactly how the crop's going to turn out until we start digging. <laughs> yeah. Cool. We're just doing some informal interviewing here. <laughs> and I interrupted? Were you actually recording? Yeah. You still are? I still, I still am. <laughs> uh, <okay>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, back to work. We did actually get back to work then, and helped the others harvest a variety of vegetables, including squash, a lot of bok choy, and the very last of the tomatoes. Afterward, we sat down with Ray to talk with him a little bit more. So Elizabeth and I live here, but there have been people, we started with five families and we're now at 18. So that's, that's been part of the vision from the beginning. And our, and our goals were to provide quality food, organic food for ourselves, to improve wildlife habitat and to build community. And uh, we've, we've done all of those very well. For Ray, growing food as part of the cooperative is one way for him to combat the environmental amnesia that he talked about earlier. And it comes with the added perk of a community that over the years has become pretty tight knit. The, the level of trust with this group is, is really high. I mean, I was thinking maybe after harvest would spend some time weeding the carrots. Mm -hmm. I never told anybody that. And then the entire carrot plot got weeded. You know, it's not, <laughs> it, it, so, so it's not like I have to initiate stuff. People see things and things happen. And so um, I guess in that sense, it's been easy. It's mm -hmm. been a lot easier than I would have guessed. When we talked to Anna and Jorian's mom, Carrie, she told us that one of her favorite parts about the work nights was the conversations that they cover everything from religion to politics, and that those conversations are surprisingly civil when they're had over a plot of carrots that need weeding. We have some people from other Mennonite churches in the area. We have people who've been Roman Catholic. We have some Quakers. We, I mean, and then we have people who are really agnostic. But there's still some kind of spiritual bond that we all have in relationship to what it is we're doing. You met Maya. Yeah. She was born in Israel mm -hmm. on a kibbutz. Mm -hmm. uh, her husband, Ziad, was born Muslim in Syria. Hydra Nawad was born in Germany uh, and suffered post-World War II craziness. Um, married a Palestinian man. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's, there's some really interesting histories in terms of the, the diversity of folks who've been a part of the farm. And those relationships are important. So, um, yeah, I think healing happens on the farm uh, because of the, the relationships that we have formed with each other, uh, with the animals, with the land, getting our hands in the dirt. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah.
using food to help us replace ourselves, to dig our roots deeper into the soil beneath us and people around us. I find this a rather compelling idea, since food is such a universal and commonplace part of our daily lives. There's the physical act of gardening that teaches us the way our local ecosystem works, learning to know the soil and plants and creatures that inhabit our watershed. But even if you're not into gardening, food is one of the most direct connections we have with the earth. It's incredible if you think about it. Our food is made of sunlight and soil, which is somehow transformed into the energy that fuels us. We are literally consuming earth every time we eat. And then there's the community component. Food is a great way to bring people together. Potlucks, family dinners, mealtimes with a host family. In my experience, these can be mediums of connection. And this all sounds good and well, but it does bring up some interesting questions. We've talked about camp, about the farm cooperative, and these strategies for replacing ourselves. But what about those who don't have access to garden space, or don't have the time for it, or the resources? Next, we'll head to the city, where we meet someone who is asking some of the same questions. For many years, the conversation around like inequity, race, food injustice, were really hovering around access really based on proximity, access based on affordability. But I, I, I see the problem as much bigger than that. Because of systems of passing on wealth, there's very, very, very little farmland owned by people of color in our country. Meet Talu Quinn. Growing one's own food, it's the ultimate source of power, you know, I, I think, because if you can feed your own family and feed We were sitting in the headquarters of the Nashville Food Project yes. in Nashville, Tennessee. Yes. My name's Tulu Schuyler Quinn, and I'm the executive director of the Nashville Food Project, which is where we are today in Nashville, Tennessee. We sat with Tulu in her office, which is covered with vibrant posters, photos of her family, and pieces of art. We can hear the volunteers in the kitchen down the hall, chopping vegetables and frying fish for the upcoming community dinner. Through the window, you can see the garden behind the building, full of tomatoes, beans, and the rest of the late summer crops. So this work, I love our mission because it starts with bringing people together to grow, cook, and share. Mm -hmm. And the bringing people together, it's not, like, it's not a peripheral or ancillary part of our mission, but it's mm -hmm. actually at the heart of this community food work. Their mission, to bring people together to grow, cook, and share nourishing food with the goal of cultivating community and alleviating hunger in Nashville. We went through this whole like meta conversation as, as a staff a couple years ago, which was like, okay, is community our goal and food is our tool to get there? Or is food and nutrition and nourishment our goal and community is the tool we use to get there? And we're like... They're both our goals and they're both our tools, you know, it's community food. Toulouse started the Nashville Food Project 10 years ago. It started as a food truck and over the course of a decade has expanded to include production gardens, a big kitchen, community meals, food recovery programs, and community gardens around Nashville. When I started this work, the food truck we were running on Tuesday nights went up to a part of North Nashville at the intersection of Dickerson Pike and Trinity Lane. And the truck on Tuesday nights at 6 p.m. would visit four, like, daily, weekly rate motels where people were living, staying. It was a pretty rough part of town. 
Functionally, the people staying in these motels were homeless, with just enough to cover the daily rate of a room. Increasingly, though, these particular motels were like on the local news for drug busts, prostitution stings, police raids, getting increasingly violent. And I was just lying in bed at night, like worried about sending volunteers up there to share a meal. And it was a delicious, hot meal shared off of a food truck. People would line up at the back of the food truck, get a meal on a cardboard tray, and take it back into their motel room. And there was really no community food happening. Mm-hmm. There was great nutrition being shared. There, these were great meals. We were proud of that. But there were really no relationships forming. You know, if anything was happening, it was reinforcing to the mostly white, affluent volunteer base. It was reinforcing these divisions between the haves and the have-nots. Mm-hmm. And not, not changing the story. The ability of food to change the story is at the heart of the Nashville Food Project's work. Tolu believes that routines around food can become ritual, take on a deeper meaning and purpose. So the ritual of eating a meal together is an opportunity to practice what we want to see in the world, to rewrite the story. So they began to wonder how this weekly mealtime could function differently in that neighborhood. This guy named Nate called us up one day. He was working for a local church just one and a half blocks from the intersection of the motel. And he said, my name is Nate, I'm organizing in the community, I ride my bike around, and what I'm hearing from our neighbors is that they want a meal. I've seen your trucks riding around in our neighborhood and I'm wondering if I got the space, our church has a fellowship hall, and I gathered the people, would you guys support this work with the meal? And truly answered prayer. And I was like, how's Tuesday night at six o'clock? So they designed a new plan, one that falls more in line with their mission. Now the meals are held at the fellowship hall at Nate's church. And there are tables set up and chairs and tablecloths and real flowers in the middle of the table and everyone wears a name tag and real plates and real silverware and we've served the meals family style and everyone cleans up. And you don't take meals to go. That's actually like a part of this. You share a meal and you're together. And the transition was hard, Tulu said. They didn't want to leave the residents of the motels behind. They were relying on those meals. So they talked to them, directing them to the church up the street. Same night, same time, and all are welcome. It now today is this vibrant community meal that has become an anchor in the neighborhood and a totally transformed mealtime. Over the course of the last five years, this community has experienced, you know, people getting sober, people dying, people, losing loved ones, people having big milestones in their lives from children graduating to people getting married, you know, and it's really been become a beautiful, beautiful ritual every Tuesday night in, in that North Nashville neighborhood. They still send volunteers, but rather than reinforcing the separateness between the haves and the have-nots, the mealtime is an opportunity to share in their humanity, as Tulu puts it. And so to me, that's just a little, I mean, has big impact in that community, but an example of how the Nashville Food Project is working alongside in close partnership on community food that's really been transforming and continuing to evolve from charity to something that looks more like justice. We begin to see what Tulu meant by transitioning from charity to justice as she talked more. Not only has the Nashville Food Project transformed its approach, they've also done a lot of work to get to know the social landscapes of Nashville. 
investigating power imbalances that result from divides of race and class, partnering with organizations led by people of color, asking communities what they want instead of projecting their own ideas onto them. These are just some of the ways that the Nashville Food Project tries to equip and collaborate, a mission that is now woven into the design of their programs. One of our garden programs is called Growing Together. It's a market garden program. All of these farmers came to the United States as refugees, and we help remove barriers that they have living in Nashville, Tennessee, in apartment buildings with no access to land. Few of them have driver's license. There are language barriers. So we can use and leverage the resources we have in terms of our relationships with chefs, our accounting, our ability to connect with markets and support them in making those connections. But at the end of the day, this is their program. This is their farm. They design their own plot. They decide what they want to sell and how they want to sell it. Nashville Food Project just provides the tools. And not only are the community gardens economically beneficial to the farmers, they can also be a source of healing. These men and women were farmers, mostly from Bhutan and Burma. Um, they all came through Nepal. Being displaced from their land, not just from their land and vocation, but like from their identity in many ways. You talk mm -hmm. about the mountains being such a important part of where you live now. Um, mm -hmm. So giving them an opportunity to reconnect and, and heal is really important. The way Tolu talks about charity and justice reminds me of a critique we heard at the Rooted and Grounded conference by Luke Beck-Kreider, a doctoral student at the University of Virginia. Luke pointed out that learning from the nature around us, while meritable, might not be enough. By relying on geographic landscapes to ground our ethics of creation care, we run the risk of ignoring the political landscapes that are shaped by geographies of privilege. In Luke's words, we risk orienting Christian ethics to an ahistorical imaginary. This is also what Tolu is saying. Getting to know the ecosystems of our local context, growing our own food, and worshiping outdoors, these are all great things. But basing an ethics of food, or an ethics of climate change for that matter, exclusively on lessons learned from the land is a big risk and a little naive. The history of food, of production, and of land in this country is complex and not at all innocent. These things are real hills and valleys in the social landscape that we traverse, and if we don't see them, it might just mean that we're not looking far enough. Learning to live on and from the land, like Ray, and learning to navigate our troubling social landscape, like Tulu, these are both immensely important, and I think vital to figuring out how we should respond to climate change. The story I told at the beginning of racing down the hill in front of my house through the rain. It's a story of identity, of belonging to the people who shaped my experiences in that place, to the land which raised me, to a home that nurtured me. But when I talk about getting to know my home, 
the physical and social topographies in my community, it makes me wonder, what about those who don't feel at home to begin with, who have no interest in learning from this land, or for those who were once removed from their home, and for those who, to this day, are being told that this is not where they belong. And that's where you'll find us next week in episode six of Shifting Climates. Shifting Climates is produced in collaboration with Sarah Longenecker, who is also our photographer and web designer. Theme music is by Jesse Reist and Marilyn Miller. Intro and credits music is by Luke Mullet. And transitions music is by Maria Yoder, Maya Garber, Perry Blosser, and John Bishop. A special thanks to the Center for Sustainable Climate Solutions, who is sponsoring this project. Shout out to the staff at Camp Friensward for showing us around and providing everything we needed for a relaxing weekend retreat including a deck of Dutch Blitz cards that kept us occupied for an entire evening. And special thanks to Kevin Seidel, my freshman writing professor, who inspired the story I told at the beginning of the episode. You can find us at www.shiftingclimates.com, where we have photo essays and previews of episodes to come. I'm Harrison Horst. And I'm Michaela Mast. See you next week.